This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please consider joining the What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, my guest is Honolulu Elementary School educator and vice principal Esther Kwan. The best way to start this introduction, listeners, is to read a bit of what was said about her by the Milken Family Foundation, which here in 2023 just bestowed on her its highest award. Quote, Esther Kwan has worn many hats in her years at Daniel K. Inoue Elementary School. Currently an assistant principal, Kwan looks for innovative ways to enhance students' educational experience in and out of the classroom. As assistant principal, she is an integral part of the school's administrative leadership team, helping to drive the instructional program and meet overall academic goals. Last year, she piloted the Pineapple Academy, a distance learning option for 12 area elementary schools. Kwan's fifth graders started each day with, quote, pineapple talk time, where they chatted, listened to music played by disc jockey Kwan, and set their intentions for the day with one of the four classroom norms. Be present, be respectful, be curious, be responsible. Students served as co-chairs, helping to summarize learning and share key ideas in the online chat panel. As incentives, the Bank of Kwan handed out pineapple money as prizes. Kwan encouraged students to follow their passions, pairing them with high school students to create projects for the state's elementary STEM fair. In the program's inaugural year, 100% of Kwan's students showed growth on diagnostic assessments, with 80% meeting or exceeding grade level targets in language arts. Kwan shared her learning practices with peers and invited state leaders into her online classroom to showcase what effective virtual instruction looked, sounded, and felt like, end quote. Those are high praise words from the Milken Family Foundation. Chan Iwase, celebrated author and the principal at Daniel K. Inoue, who hired Esther into her first job teaching, wrote the following for this episode, quote, Back in 2012, there was no Zoom, and I remember interviewing Teach for America candidate Esther Park, as she was known then, over the phone. I liked her responses and felt she would be a good fit at our school. I offered her a fifth grade position and she accepted, and thus began her journey as an educator. Esther was a young teacher, and her first class included some pretty tough kids who tested her patience and her resolve to make a difference in their lives. I know it wasn't easy, but she never gave up. She was always learning, asking why or what if questions and challenging herself to try new ideas and taking on new positions at the school. 11 years later, Esther is still in Hawaii, still making a difference as an educator and still learning and taking on new challenges. 
I am so proud of her, end quote. Kristen Brummel, who directs the Hawaii State Teacher Fellows Program, said the following about Esther, quote, she sees possibility and light where others see closed doors and is an out-of-the-box thinker who is always stretching others to think and do differently and better for students, end quote. Prior to this interview, Esther admitted to me that she is not comfortable as a public speaker. She sees herself as a writer who takes time to edit, reflect, and edit again. She was nervous before we started, but I think, listeners, you will hear her grow more confident by the minute as she fielded my sometimes huge questions. And now, here is my conversation with Milken Family Foundation Award winner, Esther Kwan. Esther, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. So before we begin, listeners, take note that I'm not going to take any time to, well, have you get to know Esther. You can do that by Googling her. There's lots of information on the web about Esther. Instead, because our time is precious, Esther and I are going to jump into the deep end of the pool right away. So let's get started. So Esther, you wrote the following to me, and I quote, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, but immigrated to Toronto in Canada when I was in the third grade, and then to Virginia in the seventh grade, end quote. And later in the same communication, you also wrote, quote, it would be amazing if every Hawaii public school offered world language classes starting at the elementary level. The benefits are tremendous, especially when we are cultivating and developing citizens of a global society, end quote. So between the first part and the last part, you wrote roughly 700 amazing and epic words that blew me away. So, <laughs> so what is your big picture thinking here? What is this essential thing, this concept of citizens in a global society linked by the variances of language, learning, and culture as informed by your own life experience. And by the way, if Dan the man and his bag figures into the story, that would be great. So. Sure. I have so many emotions and experiences that I carry with me, having been an English language learner as an elementary student. I have so many fond memories in elementary school, both funny, embarrassing, bad, sad, mm. <laughs> all of the above, ranging from like not knowing how to pronounce the word science on my new notebook that my teacher gave me on the first day of school as a third grader, literally thinking that we we're going to break ice cubes when I read icebreakers on the agenda mm. and bringing gloves to school the next day. One day I remember showing up an hour early to school because I didn't understand the concept of daylight savings mm. and just all kinds of things that went into being lost <laughs> as a child in a new country, trying to take in a new language. And it was a very difficult time for me, but I also remember really proud moments like publishing my very first story ever mm -hmm. <laughs> written in English and it was, like you said, composed mostly with words that are only three or four letters long, mm -hmm. Dan the man in his bag. And it was about 
a boy who lost his bag at the airport and then ending up finding it in the den. <laughs> uh. And I remember my mom crying and just beaming with pride when I showed her to kind of see how well I was adjusting over the years. Mm. And I think for me, what stands out from my elementary school experience is French class. Mm. In Toronto, Canada, all of us learned French starting in third grade at the time. So for me, learning French, yes, at the same time as English, Mm -hmm. was kind of the great equalizer for me because it was one of the only classes where I didn't feel like I was behind or starting from like a negative 10 compared to my peers. Like everyone was learning this language for the first time. And I felt like everyone could kind of empathize with what I might be going through as I tried to learn English. Mm. And the teacher made that language class so fun. It was filled with songs. It was filled with games. And I really remember feeling confident. And I even felt like I excelled in it. And it really just ignited my passion and interest in learning languages just for fun. Mm -hmm. So when I moved to Virginia in seventh grade, I started learning Spanish and took courses all the way throughout high school. Mm. And then in the summer of my junior year, there was a program called the Virginia Governor's World Language Academies. And each summer they select high school students from public schools and go to a university campus to learn more about the culture, the language. And we had all kinds like Spanish, Latin, German, Chinese, Mm. Japanese. And I applied and was accepted into the partial immersion Japanese program. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that was a transformative experience for me because I got to stay on a college campus as Mm. a high school student, learning about Japanese culture, the language, and meeting so many other high school students who are motivated around the state. Mm. And then as a senior, I took Latin as an elective for fun Mm. because I just really enjoyed learning languages and it carried throughout college as well. I didn't need to take a world language class because I tested out with my Korean But I just took a few semesters of Chinese because I genuinely wanted to learn and just really enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for me, fast forward to today, being able to teach Korean language and culture to my military connected students at the elementary school level has felt like an absolute dream come true. Mm -hmm. And I just see the students having so much fun learning and thinking deeply about what it means to empathize with someone who is new, someone who may not be familiar with our culture, someone, it really puts them in a place where they have to imagine what it's like to be in a new place. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so for me, I think if we could really bring world language programs at the elementary school level, that's really where we need to start. Mm. That's awesome, Esther. You know, what what I pick up out of this story is, you know, the idea that we, I think a lot of the time we think about language in sort of utilitarian terms, like, oh, I got to learn Japanese because I'm going to work in the tourist industry, or I'm going to learn Chinese because I'm going to be traveling and doing business in China. And what you're talking about is this wonderful, very human process of learning the key thing that we humans do, which is to speak 
and that along the way you gain a little bit of confidence with each language that you start to pick up, right? And what I got from, you know, my research into you and this particular story is that it's a marvelous thing for kids to go through that process. And I think if we, maybe if we treat language less as, you know, a job requirement and more as a joyful way of just becoming human, you know, maybe we would do a better job of engaging kids in language, right? So that's just, it's a great story. And I love that story. And I thank you for, for sharing it. So in an article at University of Virginia's website about you, I read the following and I quote, the Milken Educator Awards honor the country's top early to mid-career educators. The awards are a thank you for what the educators have accomplished so far, but also for the promise of what they will accomplish in the future. So I want to focus for a moment, Esther, on the word promise. It's a heavy word and it's rich with meanings and synonyms like assurance or pledge, vow, guarantee, oath, bond, agreement, commitment, contract, covenant, and compact. And I think based on hours of research into your life, I see you as having made a promise to your young learners. You have entered into a compact with them, it seems. So am I on the right track, Esther? Is this a, a fair statement on my part? And are we taking it too far if we say this really is the mission all educators must have? It's definitely a commitment to the work that is being done all around us. And I think for me, moving into this school leadership role, I am seeing kind of a different side to education. And I'm able to, I guess, delve deeper into another layer of what education looks like and what goes into operating schools. And right now, I think this Milken Award notification kind of came to me at a crossroads. Mm. I've taught for about 10 years. And now as I look into the next decade, and as I consider the transition from a classroom teacher to a school leader, I am wanting to learn more and grow to see where I can make the most impact within this field of education. Mm. So for me, I think I'm learning so much as an assistant principal in my first year, and I'm learning to adapt to lots of different hats and administrator awares and really exercising courage in the face of conflict and navigating each difficult conversation or situation, trying with mm -hmm. Aloha and figuring out how to nurture and support others while still holding firm to boundaries and accountability. And I think I need to strengthen my leadership and I need to be stronger in my emotional fortitude if it means that I'm going to commit to this long term. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that I can make an impact and really honor the people who come together at a school to support students. So for me, I'm kind of exploring what this all means. <laughs> mm, I can imagine. And so does it feel, Esther, like you're kind of entering into a new kind of phase of this promise or this compact with your school community as you pass through the crossroads and into the next phase, if you will? In a sense, yes. 
because right now my current role really prioritizes promoting safety mm. and security on our campus so that positive learning experiences can occur, right? For both kids and adults. Right. And I just, as an administrator now, I've found a new level of appreciation for all of the different people and role groups that work together to operate a school, whether it's teachers, educational assistants, cafeteria staff, office staff, custodial staff, health aides, substitutes, parent volunteers, district state specialists. Like now I see beyond kind of my classroom, my grade level, my, you know, area. And it's just been really eye-opening to see the level of communication and collaboration our teams engage in. Mm. Just how critical it is to foster a strong stakeholder partnership when you are a school leader. And I think... It sounds like in some ways you're sort of the glue now that holds the thing together, technically, in the infrastructure of the thing, right? Yeah. And I think as a teacher, I had so many different ideas, right? And my ideas weren't necessarily thinking about some of the constraints that now I see on the other side. Right. Whether it's operational or logistical, like I'm now kind of having to balance like my ideas and what education might look like or how things can be with some of the more like safety, security, liability Mm. pieces Mm. that I'm constantly learning about. Right, right. And as you mentioned to me in the intake form, even simple things like how do I work this walkie-talkie that I'm supposed to carry around, right? Yeah. You know, things like that. What shoes do I wear as I spend all day moving around campus? But that's really neat. I love the idea that you're going through this transition right now. I love the idea that the Milken Award arrived in the middle of this transition and that we get a chance to talk to you at this particular moment. That's very cool. So kind of along the same lines, Esther, your story, your journey is super interesting in in many ways. And at your school, Daniel K. Inouye, named after Hawaii's longest serving senator, you have led, by my count, six different programs. So let's imagine I'm a current U.S. senator holding hearings on the future of education and what it means to reimagine teaching and learning. And you are the star witness I brought in to talk about something called the Pineapple Academy. So this was a pandemic pivot, right? And what is it? How was it designed? And what was its vision and mission? And in what ways did it represent a significant step outside the box of traditional teaching and learning that happens on a single campus in a single classroom, typically with a single teacher? Pineapple Academy is a distance learning program, 100% distance learning program available to the elementary schools, in the Leilahua, Mililani, and Wailua complex areas. And it's really under the vision and guidance of Rachel Armstrong and Yuko Arikawa Cross. And we became the host school at Daniel K. Inouye Elementary School for families who didn't feel quite comfortable sending their kids back on campus yet. 
mm-hmm. to have another choice, an, an option for them to continue their education from home, but using programs online. And the idea was that we wanted to balance asynchronous learning through different educational programs with having access to teachers live synchronously and to also foster social-emotional connections between different students in the complex area. And so how did the program, you know, come together? What was the actual process where you began communicating with the other teachers at the different campuses and the mechanisms for making the program available to parents as an option? Like, how did that work and what did it feel like as that was kind of getting rolling for you personally? It's pretty incredible what Rachel Armstrong, my partner, vice principal, has done with the program because she directed and oversaw the logistics, the building of it all. And she would coordinate amongst the 12 different elementary school principals and tech coordinators. Mm -hmm. They would get together and figure out how devices will be distributed, working with the state to figure out how the licensing would be distributed amongst mm-hmm. the students and reaching out to families, right? At the office, when people ask about distance learning programs, making sure they become connected to our program. And Rachel and Yuko really recruited some of our teachers to join and to jump on this crazy adventure of mm-hmm. starting a distance learning program for 12 different elementary schools, K through five, And we had mostly teachers from our school and one teacher from a different school, but still within our complex area. Mm. And we each had one grade level that we were in charge of. Mm. And at what point, Esther, did you start to realize like the kids, there were elements of student engagement that maybe you hadn't seen before, that it was working, it was was happening. How did that feel? And when did you see it happening? I think it was very important for me to established a sense of community with my students. And I truly believed it was possible, even in a virtual setting, whether it's through one-on-one check-ins or whole group discussions or breakout rooms that were tightly facilitated with specific tasks and roles. I wanted to make sure students were able to get their academics, but also to connect with each other because these are students who would have otherwise never met Mm -hmm. because I had students from Mililani. I had students from Haleiwa. Mm -hmm. I had students from Wahiwa. And for them to share stories about their homeschools, we call them, and to share about their families, their experiences. And then it's really awesome to see them coming together, making connections. And also it's been really easy Compared to being in a physical classroom, to have one-on-one discussions or meetings or conferences that are very focused Mm. because you could have students in breakout rooms working on things and you just have really like no distractions talking to the one student you're trying to give feedback to. Mm. And it's really sweet because some of my students who I had as fifth graders, they went up to the same middle school now and they still send me pictures of them together (laughs) meeting in real life (laughs) Mm -hmm. and hanging out. But they were able to continue the friendships and the connections they made online and carried it over to real life. Mm. And it sounds like the parent or the concept of the parent as a learning coach was critical to this, right? Yes, absolutely. Parents had to support students 
at home to make sure they had all of the necessary tools and devices in a space where they can focus. And I would communicate with the learning coaches on a weekly basis, sometimes more to show them like what we were going over. And Mm. also we would make deliveries to all of the 12 different homeschools with packets and gifts and other craft materials. We Mm -hmm. would basically create like a care package filled with both academic stuff and fun stuff for the students, Mm -hmm. like almost every quarter, Mm -hmm. more frequent than that. And then the learning coach would have to come pick it up from their homeschool offices and we would make the delivery runs. That's just amazing. I mean, that's one of those stories of the pandemic that, you know, is it's so cool, but it also provides such a vision for what school could be, which is what we're all about, right? There's just so many ways that you can break out of the box. And I, I'm I'm super excited about Pineapple Academy and we'll be looking forward to hearing what happens, you know, in the months and years ahead, because I know that in the return to normal that everybody's been going through, it's kind of hard to keep things like that going sometimes but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So Esther, one more question before we go to our first break. You shared with me a simply astonishing document titled Daniel K. Inouye's Gifted and Talented Enrichment 2017-2018 Summary. And you reflected in this document at great length and in amazing detail how you led your school's gifted and talented program and what sorts of remarkable learning activities you designed and implemented. But right in the middle of the document, I spotted Joe Bowler's seminal article that questions the concept of testing for and then labeling kids as gifted and talented. And I know for a fact that your principal, Jan Iwase, was conflicted about this program and about the concept of kids who are designated as gifted. So I know this can be a touchy and thorny subject, But now that you are a vice principal, it seems like the right time to ask how we might get to a place where all kids are seen as, you know, worthy of this designation that we call gifted and talented. What do you think about this? Absolutely. And I think for me at the time, I was conflicted as well. And I try to take on as many students as possible into my enrichment program even taking on some of the probationary students who didn't all the way qualify, but I was able to create time and space for them to connect and share and explore together. And I think teaching as a whole is about designing meaningful learning experiences for students, right? And so I think enrichment opportunities should be provided for every student, no matter what the label might be. And so we need to look for more creative ways to make that happen on a systemic level. And it's really about finding the time and resources and the personnel to make sure we allocate the right amount of funds to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And to find people with the right vision as well, who really have a passion for designing enrichment experiences and activities for our students. Mm. I love the idea that you and Jan Iwase we're both kind of feeling the same thing at the same time. That I can imagine in most situations, the principal says, here's what's going to happen and we need to do it. And then you might feel a little bit conflicted about it, but you have to, you know, carry on. In this case, there were some questioning minds (laughs) that were in play, right? And that you were thinking about that. Is that kind of the way it was playing out at the school level? For me, how I proposed this idea to Mrs. Iwase was... 
based on a parent feedback from a school community council survey. Mm. A parent had stated that while students are tested for GT, homeroom teachers are supposed to provide differentiation for students within the general education classroom in the state of Hawaii. Mm. If they don't have a pullout program, it's called a mainstream program. And I've also heard teachers feeling very overwhelmed, right? Trying to provide interventions for the students who are struggling, students who need extra help, and then also trying to differentiate and provide enrichment activities for students who are excelling or have already mastered the concept. So I asked Mrs. Iwase if I can create a program for these students and provide some enrichment activities. And my goal was to also have these students be facilitators of some of the enrichment activities for mm. everyone else. So mm. for example, we did like a breakout EDU experiment and then they got to design their own breakout story game. And then we created like signups for different classes to mm. come and join. And they were the game facilitators and presenters. So for me, it was like, how can I take this enrichment activity program, but also widen the reach mm. at my school. Mm -hmm. I just, I have to tell you, Esther, I, I scrolled through this summary that you wrote slowly and carefully. And every time I got one page further, I was just like, wow, wow, that's an amazing <laughs> activity. Wow, that's an amazing activity. And I really got this sense that you were thinking super deeply about what school could be, about what enrichment could be, what it means to really engage students and also to give them ownership of what they, you know, could possibly do. And it was just, it was marvelous. If I had only done one thing except scroll through that document, it would have been worth it, you know, but I got a chance to do a lot more than that. So it was really neat. And I really appreciated that you shared that with me as part of my research. So... Hey everyone, you have been listening to a conversation with Esther Kwan. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be?, as always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in.
Hey everyone, we are back with Esther Kwan, an awesome educator and education leader in Hawaii's public schools and the winner of the Milk and Family Foundation Award, which is the Oscars in the teaching profession. So Esther, in an Instagram post, you reflected on the idea that you never know if you will see a student again when that student's military parent or parents are deployed to a different location, as most are. But in this post, you shared a photo of a student, now a junior in high school, and her family visiting from New York and coming to see you. It was a group photo. So share with our listeners briefly what everyone needs to know about the experience of military children and their families in our system of education and how Daniel K. Inouye Elementary School has stepped up to create a caring and connected community, which is one of the five themes of the What School Could Be, you know, ethos, if you will. I think serving a transient student population has been incredibly humbling and also very meaningful for me as someone who, although not in the military, moved around quite a bit as a kid. Mm. So I know what it's like to be a newcomer. I know what it's like to feel a sense of belonging. And I know what it feels like to not feel that way and what I really needed from others in that moment. And I think working on a military base at an elementary school where students come and go, and oftentimes they stay maybe up to three years max before they leave us. I think we try to operate with a sense of urgency and we focus on the growth that the students could show and demonstrate while we have them here with us. And we really work to make sure each kid is seen and valued very quickly because we don't have a whole five years or six years with them in the same community to see them from kinder to fifth or sixth. Mm -hmm. And I think we try to care and respect and value all of the wonderful experiences our students bring to us already. Many of our families have already been to multiple stations all across the country, Europe, Asia, before even coming to us. And then they have so many more opportunities to go abroad and visit many different places after their time with us. So it's really important for us to help our students realize what a special place Hawaii is Mm. and to really get them to explore and appreciate the beauty that the islands have to offer and making that connection through our Hawaiiana classes, different learning opportunities with our garden so that students really feel a sense of aloha and for them to remember really positive memories when they leave our school. Mm. You know, Esther, I have to believe that the gods were were looking down on the situation when Janiwasa had her phone call with you to decide whether to hire you and kind of riffing off of a podcast that I love dearly. It's called Experience Matters. The host, Steve Shapiro, is a friend that your experience really mattered in this particular situation. Because as you said, you know, moving around a lot brings that experience within you to the situation that you've been hired into. And I can just imagine that the military parents have really appreciated who you are and and what you do and how you understand them as you go through these moments where you might be deployed even in the middle of a year, right? Or in the middle of a semester, you might be Mm -hmm. deployed. So 
I think that's really neat. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to be able to talk about that because I've actually never had that conversation in 102 episodes. I've never talked about transient families before. So I really appreciate that. So switching subjects kind of radically, (laughs) on April 8th this year, 2023, I and some other educators will be hosting a virtual conference on the intersection of ChatGPT, other generative artificial intelligences and education. So coming out of the pandemic, you shared that you find yourself interested in the advancement of tech, including AI, VR, web conferencing tools, the metaverse, and so on. So where are you right now, Esther, in your head and in your heart about this seemingly explosive growth in technology, especially from your perch at the elementary school level? And given the fact that when your students reach high school, the age of generative AI might already be in the rearview mirror already. So sorry, this is a really big question, but I just wanted to see what you thought about this. Yeah, and I think my curiosity with this realm kind of exploded with my experience doing distance learning for Mm -hmm. fifth grade students. And I think I'm really interested in how the teaching profession or the role of a teacher will shift as a response to some of these new technology that we have available to us. And I think right now I'm reading a lot of articles about chat GPT and how some students are blocked from using it at their schools. <laughs> and I think for me, I think about when a calculator was invented, right? I wonder yeah. what types of responses people might've had to that and how it's still being used in schools today. And I think there is an opportunity here for collaboration with AI. Yes. Even at the elementary school level, like let's say you use ChatGPT for a story, you give it a prompt and it generates a story. And then you ask students, hey, okay, the AI started a story for you. Now you got to finish it. So it kind of curbs the temptation to use it to generate the actual writing assignment, right? But you're working and collaborating with AI to produce something that's original, right? Mm. Or maybe you can ask ChatGPT for feedback because there's one teacher in a classroom and 20-something students, right? So you can ask AI for feedback on grammar, spelling, any adjustments stylistically that needs to be made in a writing assignment. And I I talk a lot about writing because I think that is like a hot topic using ChatGPT. But I think it has so many benefits too. For example, if you're working on speaking skills, right? Presentation skills, debating. You don't have to spend so much time getting the students to research all of the facts and opinions about a controversial topic or issue. You can just ask ChatGPT to generate some examples or like solid points. And then you just have the students isolate the speaking skills if that's what you're really trying to hone in on, right? Mm -hmm. And have them debate using those points or asking ChatGPT to answer an ethical question and for students to have discussions about where AI stance might be coming from. And if what it generated is true, what are some of the implications of that? What is ChatGPT assuming? What are its assumptions or biases? And Mm -hmm. I think about this post that a dear friend shared online that really stuck with me. It was someone on Twitter asking ChatGPT to list the top 10 philosophers. Oh. And it did. It listed like Plato, Descartes, Hume, whatever. And then it asked, hey, ChatGPT, why did you list 
only male philosophers. Mm, mm-hmm. And then ChatGPT would answer, be like, oh, sorry, here are 10 women philosophers. And you would ask it again, why did you list only Western philosophers? Mm. And then it would give you philosophers from all over the world. Then you would ask again, why did you list only male Western philosophers? And it keeps going and going. And then finally you ask it, list the top 10 philosophers. And then it gives you the same 10 lists from the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for students to discuss, like, what are the questions we should be asking? Mm. Because in a world where answers are so readily available and easily accessible, I think it's more important for students to develop the skill to ask the right questions, the great questions. And I think it really starts with the culture of encouraging students to wonder and really cherish their inquiries. That's awesome, Esther. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, what's really interesting is that when we started receiving RSVPs for this conference that's coming up on April 8th, 2023, just a couple of weeks from now, initially we were surveying the educators who were signing up, Esther, and a huge percentage, 90% of them had never heard of ChatGPT. And then additional RSVPs started coming in and we kept doing the survey and that number dropped down to like 6%. And what that means is that there's just been an explosion of writing, of articles and blogs and and podcasts and TV shows and everything about generative AI. And it means what I found in the data was that educators are really locking in because they understand the gravity of the moment. And that made me feel Mm -hmm. good. It gave me hope. It just made me think like, oh, educators, they're really paying attention, right? And I, I love that idea. And it sounds like that's what was going on with you. Definitely. And I think I'm really excited to see how education will shift and change as a result of the fast growing pace of some of the AI technology that we have available to us. And I'm really interested to see more teachers shifting from being the direct source of knowledge, information to more of a facilitator, a curator, a coach or a mentor when they work with students. Right. And give the kids the opportunity to engage with the artificial intelligences and then work as that guide on the side as they figure out how to engage. So that's awesome. I love that. So Esther, again, shift in direction, maybe a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed three key directors at Embark Education, which is a micro middle school in Colorado. And I asked the head of school, Brian Hayosaka, a pretty big policy question about the teacher profession, which I'm going to ask you as well. So setting aside teacher pay and affordable housing and the long hours teachers spend, how might we inspire more Americans to become teachers? Like what in your mind, Esther, what's the secret sauce? I think we need to be more creative and flexible with what teaching could look like having been through a pandemic as a society. And I think there are so many lessons we learn from working from home and having more balance and 
being able to be more efficient with our time using web conferencing tools and other educational apps. And I think a lot about how we might be able to reimagine the role, of course, but maybe Mm -hmm. the scheduling, the delivery, Mm -hmm. how the jobs are split up, how the different tasks are grouped. And I think we really need to think about the employee experience Mm. as a department in order to recruit and attract top talent. And we need to re-examine what we offer as an employer and look for ways to expand choice for teachers. And I think I'm kind of exploring and ideating right now with, of course, the backdrop of like the Mm. logistical constraints that I'm also mm-hmm. learning simultaneously. Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering if we have the workforce, right? The workplace that are changing rapidly. Shouldn't we also try and adapt to mm. in education? And I think we need to incorporate maybe more non-traditional models of teaching, maybe expanding hybrid options, blended yeah. or 100% distance learning or full in-person. Like there needs to be more choice Mm. for different families that come to us in the public school system. Mm. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think the teaching role and the delivery of the practice could look a little different too. There Mm. needs to be more flexibility. Mm. And when you have that, Esther, you start to get a wealth of data about all of those individual choices, the way that you describe it, all the different ways of approaching something like blended or hybrid models. And you get data and you learn from that and you tweak and you grow. And I love that. And on top of that, I love the idea that our public education system needs to really think about who it is as an employer and what that employee experience is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that should be the norm for our families to have different models of schooling, different methods of teaching and learning within the system that works well for each family. Every family is so different Mm -hmm. as I come to learn. Mm -hmm. And every student is a different type of learner. And so, yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So Esther, one more question. Actually, it's a two-parter, but one more topic that we're going to cover before we go to our second break. So you shared with me a long list of extracurriculars you engaged in when you were at University of Virginia. There is one I want to zero in on. Several of my guests on this show, including my daughter, Emma, have done refugee work outside of their time as teachers. Your work with Madison House was something called Bridging the Gap. So two questions for you. The first is, what does it mean to be a, quote, refugee mentor? And how did that work shape the arc of your life and or broaden your horizons and or fine-tune emerging skill sets? Yeah, as a college student, I was paired up with a fourth grade student from Tanzania. And in our Charlottesville area, my college town, International Rescue Committee had a branch and they were the sponsoring organization. And they worked with refugees from maybe 12 different countries and many were from Africa. And for me at the time, it was about giving back, but also spending some of my own time to give back in a way that welcomes new people because I deeply Mm. empathize with that experience. And at the time I was 19, 20, it was really about giving my mentee a stress-free time 
because yeah. for me as a newcomer, as an English language learner, as an immigrant, I remember having to help out translate, whether it's my family or other students. And sometimes it could get really stressful. And I sense kind of a similar sentiment from my mentee. So mm -hmm. if it meant I picked her up to go get ice cream or go play in the park with her younger sister or tagging along mm -hmm. or taking her to our college events on the lawn mm -hmm. and having her meet older, cool people, right? I just wanted it to be a fun, stress-free experience. Mm -hmm. Looking back though, as a 30-something-year-old, I wonder if I could have also had deeper conversations with her mm. or found ways to engage her in sharing her stories. I don't think I was thinking enough about that piece. Mm. I was just so focused on giving her a sense of joy. I remember bringing her so many clothes, <laughs> hand-me-down clothes that were in good condition and she would have a whole fashion show. And I just love seeing her happy and her family being excited to see us hang out. But yeah, it's really about strengthening that sense of belonging for newcomers. And I definitely gravitate towards that, whether it's transient students at my elementary school or new teachers and helping them out. Mm. That's an experience that I think I am just drawn to naturally based on my personal experiences. Yeah, that's awesome. And so kind of along the same lines, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask, drawing from all your experience and education, if you were going to teach an elementary school unit called Understanding and Solving the Refugee Question, what would you try to have happen over the course of the unit? Like in what ways would you engage your kiddos in this massively complex question? My mind goes to so many different entry points. Mm -hmm. Thinking out loud, I think I would start with things that my students can relate to. So for my military connected students, I might mm. start by posing a question. What was it like for you to be a new student? Mm. Just new to a place in general and have them generate questions or feelings they might have felt. And then maybe I would expose them to different types of newcomers, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Other than refugees, there are so many different types of newcomers like they might be non-refugee migrants. Mm. They might be really highly schooled newcomers, like children of government officials or professionals that move from one country to another. Right. Maybe they're students with limited formal education that arrive to our country. Maybe they are second or third generation who never got that language experience in the home. So I would maybe give profiles of different newcomers and have them think through the different challenges each might face mm. and then kind of zone in maybe to the refugee newcomers mm. and have them start exploring interviews. I would love to connect them to real refugees if possible or people oh, who work with refugees. That'd be great. Yeah. And then... I love doing design thinking process with students. Mm -hmm. I think that's my idea of fun, just <laughs> half day design thinking process on a topic and just ideating and creating. <laughs> so maybe if they were able to listen to an interview or, sorry, my mind is going all over. There's a novel called Inside Out mm. and Back Again. Have you heard of it? No. It's written in three verse and it's about 
a child who leaves Vietnam and goes to Guam as a refugee who eventually comes to the United States. I might have students read that book since it's pretty short, but very powerful. And then maybe do a design thinking process for the main character in that book Mm. and talk about what we read, what we hear her say, think, do and feel to do the empathy mapping piece. Mm. And Mm -hmm. then figure out like the how might we statement, right? Mm -hmm. The main character needs a way to whatever her need is because of the insight from the book and start creating ideas about what they might be able to invent or innovate or educate or campaign on. Mm. And then really just assist the students in discovering what they find. Mm -hmm. You know, Esther, one of the things that was really neat when I interviewed my daughter for the 101st episode was that she talked about her time serving refugees from Syria on an island in Greece called Lesbos. And she told the story about how she figured out these were all male kids. She figured out that they were being asked to shower with soap that didn't smell familiar to them or may have been, you know, disorienting in a way. And so she started a GoFundMe campaign and she raised enough money to be able to go out and buy special kinds of soap that actually were familiar to them. And that's the kind of invention that you're talking about there. You're just in the design thinking process, you're opening up all these possibilities for ideas. And you have also done what many of my guests have done, which is you now have made me want to go back to elementary school, (laughs) Esther. (laughs) I want to go back and I want to go through that experience. So that's really neat. So, hey, everyone, you have been listening to a conversation with Esther Kwan. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Esther Kwan, an awesome educator and education leader in Hawaii's public schools and a graduate of the University of Virginia and Johns Hopkins University. So, Esther, you wrote a piece for Edutopia that had me laughing really hard at least until I figured out what a brilliant reflection it was about the core of what it means to engage students. So please tell us how to get kicked out of a museum. Tell our listeners how to get kicked out of a museum and the epiphany you experienced about student engagement. I'm all about finding small moments that I can turn into an inside joke or a funny moment for my students. And I think as I was preparing to 
get my students ready for behavior expectations and all of that for a field trip to a museum, I started just kind of joking around and (laughs) asked the students, hey, how can we make sure to get kicked out of the museum today? And the responses of my students were just so fun. I had to write about it because I was trying to review the safety rules, but it's so boring, right? No one wants to hear this long list of what not to do. And so I thought I could spin it around in a way where I can get the students to do the heavy lifting Mm -hmm. and come up with all of the points that I already knew they knew. So when I asked them the question, we had really, really silly responses like, oh, we can touch everything on display. We can talk really loud. We can run laps around the entire gallery. And one even said, we can sneak around the back and shut off the power to the entire (laughs) museum. And once you get silly like that, you know the students are paying attention and they're engaged. And Mm -hmm. then you can get serious. (laughs) And you can push students to kind of peel back the rationale Mm -hmm. behind some of these ideas that they came up with on their own. And they're invested when it's their own idea that you're responding to. Mm. So for example, don't touch the art, right? Mm-hmm. Touching everything on display will definitely get you kicked out. So what should we do instead? Don't touch the art. Think a little deeper. What can we do actually? And the student is able to say, oh, we can put both our hands behind us when we look at an artwork. And so going through that process helps students cover everything I needed to cover but also actually remember them and implement it when we were at the field trip. They snickered here and there, pretending, (laughs) but couldn't actually. And it's just a fun idea to apply to different areas too. How can we confuse our reader with our writing? How Mm. do we create the worst science fair experiment ever? (laughs) What might help us give up on a math problem-solving task? Mm -hmm. And it's just really about finding small ways to engage students to explore deeper behind what we're trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. And Esther, I would have been that kid in the front row with his hand, you know, completely up in the air saying, let's go turn off the power for the whole museum. (laughs) You know, that would have been me. (laughs) Part A, part B, part C of the plan, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's an awesome story. And one of the things that I really loved about that is that when you write for Edutopia, or for anybody, what you're doing is you're putting ideas out into what I call the marketplace of ideas. And that means that other educators might read that. Had I still been teaching when I read that article, I would have just been like, wow, that's an idea that I could adopt. And I think that that's what's making me feel hopeful these days is that the sharing of these kinds of ideas is exploding almost as fast as, you know, chat GPT is. And that makes me feel hopeful because... You know, as these ideas find their particular hosts and make themselves manifest through teacher A or teacher B, that means that the student's experience changes. So that's that's really, really awesome. So Esther, in 2022, I read The Good Ancestor by Roman Krisnark. It's an amazing book. It really changed my life in 2022. And in it, the author describes a series of, quote, good ancestor questions and prompts that lead to deep conversations. And there are six of them, and they are huge, and they live at the 30,000-foot level. And you selected one of them to respond to today. So here goes. Here's your prompt for you. What, for you, Esther Kwan, are the most powerful reasons for caring about future generations? 
As a teacher, as an educator, I think it is my desire to develop good people who are leaders because they will be our future. And I think we need to work on designing experiences that really help them discover their strengths and passions and also inspire them to use their talents to make a difference, to make a positive change in the world. And I think for me personally, so many of my experiences in elementary school has greatly shaped my values and solidified the things that I care about. And I think because of the people who invested in me as a kid and as a child, I was able to continue learning, continue strengthening my skills in a way that made me want to give back. Mm. And so I think investing our time and energy in young people Mm. is never a waste. And we must do it always Mm. consistently with the best intentions at heart. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome, Esther. That's how I feel about it. And that's really kind of why I keep going with this podcast, why you know, we're well over a hundred episodes now is that each of these educators brings a different kind of spin to that concept. And it just gives me so much hope. As we think about moving away from just hashtag future ready to hashtag shaping the future, I think that that's what I'm really fixed on right now. What do you think about that? Absolutely. And I think I tell my students, you know, when we talk about the global goals and we talk about student voice, We talk about how they don't need to wait until they're adults to make a difference. Yes. How they can do lots of things already within their own communities, within their school, within their classroom, in their homes right now, right here with what they know and how to do. So Mm. it's all about encouraging students to follow their curiosities and really cheering them on to pursue what they are passionate about right now. It doesn't have to be in the future. So Esther, perfect segue to my next question, which is the second to the last in this lovely conversation. In late April, you will travel to the 2023 Milken Educator Awards Forum in Los Angeles. And I can only imagine what you were thinking and feeling about this moment, this gathering coming up. But I don't need to imagine, I can ask you. So with a month to go before your trip to LA, what's on your mind and heart and what do you hope to bring back from your interactions with other Epic Milken educators? I'm really grateful (laughs) to the Milken Educator Awards team and the Milken Family Foundation for gifting our school community with such a special memory. When they came to our school for the surprise assembly and making that announcement in front of hundreds of students, it really helped me to see how much positive influence teachers can show our students, Mm. not just in a big formal setting, but in the day-to-day. And for me, when I go to LA, I'm really excited to learn about the stories each educator carries 
and the stories of their students that they have to share Mm. and figuring out ways we can inspire the next generation to become educators in the future. Mm. And I think there are so many different ideas. We just need to talk about them and share them and collaborate to figure out what might be the best solution to solve some of the teacher shortages we are seeing. Mm -hmm. Lack of excitement, people feel the fatigue that we are definitely seeing across the board in our field. And I think I'm ready to feel energized, but also really humbled Mm -hmm. to be able to go there and kind of represent Hawaii and share some of the great things that are happening here. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to bring back what I learn. And I'm really excited to share my reflections and more ideas that I learn. Mm. Yeah. And I wish for you, Esther, a just massively amazing series of conversations with people in LA. I can just only imagine what that's going to be like and how much you will have in your metaphorical suitcase as you travel back at the end of that forum. So I hope it goes really well. And so that's a perfect segue to this final question. I'd love to end episodes, Esther, by giving guests an opportunity to shout out to special people in their lives, the giants, if you will, upon whose shoulders they stand. And you shared with me, and I found it totally in keeping with who you are, a lengthy list of names of mentors and coaches who support shaped your life and and guided your life. So let's focus on one of these individuals, the celebrated Hawaii public school educator, principal blogger, and two-time author, somebody we've already talked about, Jan Iwase, who is the visionary who hired you at Daniel K. Inouye Elementary School. So in what ways did Jan shape your journey starting some 11 years ago? And maybe more broadly, Esther, how have all the coaches and mentors you listed helped you navigate the sometimes turbulent waters of the teaching profession? Yeah, I'm forever grateful to Mrs. Iwase. I can't ever call her Jan. (laughs) I I call her Mrs. Iwase for hiring me and taking a chance on Mm -hmm. a very young 20-something-year-old who definitely struggled with classroom management took on way too much, (laughs) but she's been there and supported me throughout everything and also gave me opportunities to try new things. And when I came to the table with ideas, Mm. she gave me the space and the trust to try things out for our school because I think she really did believe in my good intentions. And she's definitely a model for innovative leadership. She's always been at the forefront of trying new things. And she was really the one who introduced the idea of project-based learning to me and what it looks like to be a reflective practitioner. Mm -hmm. She would share her writing with us very often, her reflections on what's been happening at our school, whether it's our renovation project or a new strategy from a math book she read. She's constantly learning and she really set up for me as an early educator, that learning never stops and professional development continues even when you're a principal, even when you've been in the game for so many years. So I really am grateful to her for that. And since coming to Hawaii in 2012, I've been so blessed to meet wonderful and brilliant educators who've really shaped my philosophy in education, what I didn't even know was possible at the time. Some of the teachers have shown me 
through their actions and through their journeys, it's possible. And without those role models and examples, I would not be who I am today. And I can only hope to provide that same support and guidance for many younger educators as well. Mm. So what we'll do, Esther, is we'll dedicate this episode to Jan Iwase, Mrs. Iwase. <laughs> Mrs. Iwase. Oh, boy. And, and all of the mentors and guides and coaches and sponsors and friends who have been with you along this journey, which, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, is at a bit of a crossroads and you're moving forward into the realm of administration and of leadership. And I'm super excited for you. I just think that this is a marvelous moment. And I'm super grateful that we had the opportunity to catch you at this particular moment and to get your thoughts on some of these subjects. So to you and your awesome husband, we wish that you stay safe and healthy. And thank you for being on the show today, Esther. Thank you, Josh, for helping me reflect. It was wonderful to talk with you this evening. And I look forward to meeting in real life soon. Awesome. We'll see you soon. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>